This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Well, JP, it is so fantastic to be with you again. I took a little bit of a break from uh, recording with you, but I have to say, you know, we love to celebrate the milestones. And um, this, I understand, is going to be our 100th regular podcast recording together. Is that correct? That's right. You know, we were just uh, counting things up before we started rolling here. And I mean, as our listeners will know, this clearly isn't the 100th episode we've posted. I I think we have over 200, somewhere in the 220s of actual things that we've posted. But discounting the special series and the special reports and all the the mini focus series that we've done in terms of just normal numbered episodes, this is the big 100. And I mean, it's a huge milestone, right? Yeah, and, and it's only been, let's see, right before pandemic, we started in, in the fall of 2019, right? So it's been not even three years yet. And I was looking at our stats. We are going to very soon break the half million mark on listens. So I do want to give the shout out to our listeners for making that possible. It's been fantastic to go on this journey so far. And uh, it, that's not bad. There's only 5,000 neurosurgeons in America. We are very proud and we could not have done it without you guys. Right. It is just, you know, it, it's, it's so gratifying to think that there's a group within the community of neurosurgery who have stuck with us over these years and keep coming back to hear not just what we have to say, but what our guests have to say and, and hear from other members of this community. I, I think when we first started out, I would be happy if we had a, a few hundred listens per episode. And, and now we're posting once a week and easily every single week, every single episode, we're averaging around 2000 listens. And of course, that's including some trainees and some students. But as you said, in a, in a community within this nation, as small as neurosurgery, that is a huge, huge proportion of practicing neurosurgeons in the country who are coming here to hear from their peers. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, JP. And I, I feel like I've learned a lot. I was just at Stanford this past week. Um, Dr. Michael Lim, who's the new chair, congratulations to Michael. Um, invited me out to give grand rounds and saw a lot of old friends, a lot of old guests on the podcast like John Ratliff and, and Nanvir Vagu and uh, Gary Steinberg and John Adler. And and the chief resident who picked me up, uh, a shout out to Zach Madras, who's taking a job in Privademics in Portland, Oregon. Zach was telling me how he, he had gone to Stanford for college and medical school and now residency. And he listens to our podcast regularly. And he, he wasn't making up. He was talking about all the different episodes. And his, he said his wife, who's not a doctor, is like, listen, you do neurosurgery all the time. You have to really also listen to it on the side. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> you know, I love the podcast. So, Zach, thank you. It's, it's folks like you that have made us so successful. Yeah, it is really a strange and, you know, heartwarming experience. We were just at AANS in Philadelphia and meeting people who are listeners of the show that I've never met before, but, uh, you know, they don't always know what I look like, but sometimes they hear me talking and then they recognize the voice or I go to introduce myself to somebody and they go, oh my gosh, it's you from the, the podcast. You know, that doesn't happen frequently, but since I started in the field of neurosurgery, I was always the person who would go up to people I had heard of. Oh, I've read your paper. I've read your chapter in this book. And I wanted to introduce myself and say, oh, I'm such a fan. It's it's great to meet you. Uh, I, I really appreciate and admire your work and blah, blah, blah field. 
But to have people coming up to, to me, I'm just a trainee and, and talk about these conversations that we have and the interviews that we do. And, oh, I loved what you said in this episode. It's really a surreal experience. Well, you know, I, I started out very nervous and I still am a little bit. I was doing some chart review for a friend of mine who's defending him in litigation. And I was always afraid that, you know, these fucking lawyers, like I know your, your dad's a lawyer, your brothers are lawyers, but they're going to get a hold of these podcasts and be like, Dr. Wang, in episode 86, didn't you say that? And they'll put, put the recording up, right? And like try to quote you. As right. Well, you I'll, I'll tell you that. Before. And I, I stand by, right? I stand by everything I say, but I worry about that. But then all of our guests have been so honest and heartfelt and earnest, which is amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. Sometimes, you know, we talk before we have a guest on and sometimes we'll plan and say, oh, this person's really going to open up. They, you know, they have no filter. And, oh, this person, we might have to draw them out a little bit. But I, I think easily I, I have been so frequently surprised by the amount of things that our guests have been willing to share. And I will tell you that in addition to my father and my brother, my two sisters are also lawyers. And that little disclaimer we put on all of our episodes, I have screened through my family and has met their approval. So you, you should be protected with any of the stories you share. Well, along those lines, and, and there have been so many great podcasts. I'm thinking about when Susie Orban called you out on student loan debt. And, uh, you know, very, very shocking thing said. I think the award so far for the most controversial and highly uh, engaged recording we've done was with Nick Bullis. And if Nick's listening today, I want to thank him for bearing a little bit of his heart and soul because he's such a complex genius of an individual. But what he shared with us in terms of his feelings and his personal life um, really were very special to, to most of the people that I've talked to. And, and it's that kind of engagement that makes this worth doing, makes it worth taking the time to record with you. So JP, I want to thank you for, for taking me along this journey with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this has been such a profound and educational experience, I think, for both of us. You know, for, for me, I get the benefit of uh, talking with and getting to ask questions of these luminaries in our field and, and people I would never have the chance to cross, path with, cross paths with uh, otherwise. But uh, I'd like to think that for both of us, having these experiences, having these conversations, uh, having really an excuse to talk not just with each other, but with all of these guests who are generous with their time, their experience, their their inner processes of life, uh, just having an excuse to sit down and have these human conversations where in our busy schedules, we, we may never find the time is uh, really a, a special and, and rare uh, gift in, in a life within such a, a busy field. Um, I, I wonder, you know, looking back on, on all these episodes that we've done, Dr. Wang, Obviously, I, I agree that Dr. Boulos's conversation with you was really raw and very profoundly human, but um, maybe not just thinking about what was the most uh, open and sharing conversation, but just what are some of your favorites thinking back? You know, we've been doing this almost three years now. What are some of the episodes that you still return to in your mind and think about? Well, you know, I, I still stand by those first recordings we did in person at CNS and I still um, think back and, and the discussion with John Adler, I think, is still one of my absolute favorites. Yes. Um, partly because I know him as a human, but there, there have been so many, right? I mean, neurosurgeons have done so many amazing things 
that it's hard to pick a favorite. How about you? What, what's your favorite? I would have to agree with you that um, uh, Dr. Adler's first episode with us has been one that I frequently return to. I, I think that it was one that left me feeling very inspired at the end of it. Um, and I, I think about that conversation, the experience of talking with him frequently from that same week when we were in San Francisco um, doing 20 episodes a day, I still think about our first interview with uh, Dr. Lou Tumialan, who's been on the show a couple extra times, was even a guest host. And I, I just remember him talking about his experiences in the Navy, bringing that sense of efficiency to the operating room. And I remember we did a sound check with him where he, he recited uh, part of the Gettysburg Address uh, just to, to check our recording. And, and I made sure to include that in the episode. Yeah, he's, um, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we haven't had a chance to speak publicly together for a while. So I wanted to bring up a topic that you and I really have not talked about. Uh, and we'll talk about it publicly because I think it's so relevant. And um, I'm talking about the recent case last month that was adjudicated on this nurse at Vanderbilt. Her name is uh, Redonda Vaught, V-A-U-G-H-T. Uh, JP, you've, you've heard about this case? I have, you know, we, we were just talking before we started recording at completely unplanned and unrelated to, to scheduling this conversation today. I just finished listening this morning to a, an excellent podcast about it from uh, The Drive with Dr. Peter Atia, who I'm happy to plug. And I've talked about the, the, his podcast on our show before. I would point all of our listeners within medicine to it. It's a great show. And he did a, a wonderful in-depth interview talking about this case and about medical errors in general. So by, yeah, by yeah. happenstance, I'm, uh, I'm more well-informed than I usually am with current events to talk about this. So, yeah, so I'm not going to go the way of Peter Atia because I'm not going to be politically correct and talk about medical errors. <laughs> right. but, but I will tell you that when this case was breaking, I remember I, I had heard about it that morning and I walked into our, our, uh, our workroom where, you know, the residents and the nurses and nurse practitioners are, right? And all the nurses were on their phones watching this, either reading or watching something about it. I'm like, what's going on here? And I never see that, right? You, you, the, the, the tenor was, was dark. It was somber. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, this case. And, um, and then there were a lot of mixed emotions from a lot of people that are close to me about what this case means, because it is a very important case. And it has to do with neurosurgery, too. And do you want to recount the cases or, or do you want me to do that? The, the, the details of the case, the facts of the case. Yeah, I mean, uh, briefly, to my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll try to be as um, narrative as possible and avoid granular detail to make sure I don't misspeak. But to my understanding, there was a patient who was admitted at the hospital with a subdural hematoma um, who was doing well, recovering, um, awake and extubated, ready to transfer out of the ICU. And they had ordered another CT scan on her. Uh, just for surveillance before transferring out of the ICU. And an order was placed, um, or I, I guess this nurse in question had requested some uh, Versed to help relax the patient to undergo the scan, which is not an uncommon thing. And by mistake, um, the medication that was dispensed from the, the Pixis, the medication dispensing system, was not Versed, which starts with a VE, but instead Vecuronium, which also starts with a VE, which is a, a very powerful paralytic agent. And so improperly, this medication was requested, it was dispensed, and then ultimately it was administered uh, by this nurse 
who's, uh, you know, facing the lawsuit. And this powerful paralytic, again, uh, was administered to the patient who became paralyzed, went into respiratory distress and failure and ultimately died. Okay, so that's exactly right. Now, I'm going to give some more granular detail because it's really interesting. The law is interesting and so is medicine. So let me add a little bit of color to it. So the nurse is a 36-year-old employee of Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, in Nashville, Tennessee. The patient is a 75-year-old lady named Charlene Murphy. She comes in on Christmas Eve, okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if it's a chronic, it must be a chronic subdural, right? I don't, I don't really know. They don't talk about the neurosurgery in the case, but it's some kind of subdural hematoma. And she gets admitted and then two days later, the day after Christmas, and I think the, the details of this kind of do matter if you work in a hospital, right? You know what it's like on the 24th and the 26th of December, right? And this was in 2017. So this is pre-COVID. So a lot of young people are like, oh, COVID this. No, this is pre-COVID, 2017. And um, they're getting a final check scan in MRI. So an MRI of the brain takes somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour in an academic center, Right. And the patient was not on monitors. So the vacuronium was given, which essentially paralyzed her. And so this is really important in the, in, in the, in the jury um, decision-making. That picture that you are awake, and I don't know how coherent she is. I assume she was. And suddenly you're paralyzed, meaning you can't breathe. Okay, so all your... All sensation- your- Sorry? Nothing, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, picture that, you know, it's like the zombie thing, right? It's like the voodoo thing. So you can't move, you can't breathe, you can't cry for help, but you can see and you can feel and, you know, all the, that's the idea anyways, right? That's the concept, right? And then she dies of respiratory arrest in the scanner. They're unaware because she's not on monitors. She's not on a SAT monitor or EKG monitor. The lady's 75. So it goes to jury trial. Now, this is where this really, now all these details matter. And it's relevant to neurosurgery, right? This could be my patient. So the really important part about this case that I saw, and I know there are many ways, of course, the important part is a person died, right? But the litigation part is, I can't think of any modern cases where this became a criminal offense. In other words, neurosurgeons have complications all the time and we get sued on average every two years. Fortunately, you know, you and I haven't had that degree of experience, but it's not uncommon for a neurosurgeon to get involved in lawsuits, right? And they happen in the civil court. In other words, someone's looking for financial damages. They're looking for money to make up for the loss or the pain or suffering or loss of function, whatever, right? But they were seeking criminal charges, And so this nurse lost that case and was set to be imprisoned. This is where all my nurses and nurse practitioners were on their phones watching this case happen. Now, the end result is uh, just came out a couple weeks ago that the sentencing. uh, So, you know, like if you know anything about the law, first they do the 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 uh, what do they call it, JP, where they figure out if you're Judy, if if you're if you're guilty or not. It's the actual trial. Right. And then later there's a sentencing, which determines what the punishment will be, right? Right. So in sentencing, they agreed to, I think, something like two or three years of probation. So at first, the nursing community was up in arms like, oh, my God. So you're going to say every time we do something wrong, then we could go to jail, right? And then the second part was, okay, well, she's just going to get probation. So that's a win for the nursing community. Now, add to all of this the concept 
that this nurse's defense, her main thrust of defense was she came forth immediately and admitted that she was wrong. In other words, she didn't try to hide it. She, she was aware that it happened. She immediately, you know, felt remorseful and came directly forward like the Michigan plan, right? At University of Michigan that you just admit that you did something wrong. Like, like uh, let's say you're, you're a spine surgeon. I've never done this, but you cut a nerve root and you, you do it in the OR and then you come out to the patient's family and say, look, I'm sorry, I cut your mom's nerve root. That's the Michigan plan, right? So that's the sort of like people are saying, well, that's the way it should be, whether it is or isn't. I mean, it's up to debate, but this is what this nurse did. And so people are always like, people after this case are like, okay, fine, we're going to conceal everything. We're going to bury the mistakes, right? That's the fear, right? So there's a lot of elements of this case that really deserve attention and discussion. Yeah, and one of them that that I was really struck by, both in uh, listening to uh, the interview about it, reading about it, was that you know, not, not only the fact that she was charged in a criminal court, not a civil court, as you pointed out, but she was actually charged initially with homicide, not even manslaughter. She was charged with homicide, which is generally reserved for an intentional killing of another person, not a, a death through negligence, as would be manslaughter. And so she, she was charged with a, a level of crime uh, greater than that of, of a car accident or even drunk driving when, when they're charged with manslaughter. This, this person was charged with homicide, which is, you know, it, it, it's unthinkable, not only, as you pointed out, to, to be in a criminal setting rather than civil, but to be charged with this in, intentionality, which I don't think anyone would argue is truly present. Well, you know, I, I will say this, and this is a very complicated discussion because we're talking about a population of something like four or five, maybe three or four or five million nurses in America, right? So it's a lot of people. It's a very diverse group of people, and um, people have had good and bad experiences with nurses, right? And and yeah, there are cases, I mean, you, we've witnessed it as neurosurgeons of nurses doing being, being negligent that hurt patients. That's one of the reasons why neurosurgeons get written up so much in training, Right. A lot of your battles are, unfortunately, with the hospital staff, like like nurses. Obviously, you know, I'm indebted to my nurses. They do a great job. But I've run into many scenarios where I'm like, this person is obstructing proper care, at least in my mind, right? So there's that side. And there's the other side, which is this is on the back of the pandemic. This is right during the phase where the nurses who have gone through all the trauma of seeing people die every other day in COVID wards. And then now nursing salaries going over, I think, $190, $200 an hour, right? So this is occurring at a specific, unique time in American history that is very, very unusual. Um, it, it is such a fascinating case because, you know, you know, doctors are not that far from nurses in this regard. So in other words, next time I have a, a death of one of my patients, will I be brought before a criminal tribunal, right? Like there's a lot of things that, that are interesting about this, but on the other hand, would this not make people more careful? I mean, should she not have been more careful? I mean, vecuronium is pretty obvious when you're giving it, I think. I mean, I don't know yeah, over this case. Yeah, that was actually an interesting point in the in the discussion I listened to. Apparently, vecuronium is is frequently, in, in fact, always dispensed in a powder form, uh, whereas Versed is dispensed in a liquid form. So there was even an active step that had to be taken to prepare the medication for administration, which should have uh, caused pause or or set off a red flag in an experienced nurse who you know ha has this material dispensed in a way that it never would have been if it were the proper medication. And had to go through an active step of mixing it for administration, which should never happen with with Versed, the appropriate medication, which is another interesting little facet of the case.
And um, then there's the, the whole technology piece, which is, as you said, like when we rely so heavily on Pixis, is it is it that it comes out of the Pixis and it, people don't take responsibility anymore? Should there be more human contact with meds like when anesthesiologists use it? Or should the Pixis be even more uh, of, a, of, a, of a stopgap, right? Even more of a stop check, push another button, another alarm. Like it could, it, this can be debated a lot of different ways in terms of what's safest and most efficient for delivering care. Yeah. And as you point out in terms of the, the time in our society and in our field when this is occurring, of course, it, it shouldn't need to be said. But again, just to say it to frame the conversation, what's important here is the, the human who is harmed, the loss of life, the family who lost their loved one. And what, what's really important is figuring out a way to make sure these mistakes don't happen again. But that being said, and kind of zooming out on the broader picture, like you said, coming out of the pandemic, we're dealing with nursing shortages. We've been dealing with physician shortages in different fields, particularly in primary care, for years in the United States. And so now it's such a time where, okay, we have our physician shortages, but now after the pandemic, nurses are leaving the field, nurses are retiring in droves, driving up their salaries to try to retain personnel to do these necessary jobs. Now, all of a sudden, they're faced with this fear of, oh, my Lord, well, if I make a mistake on the job, am I going to go to prison for that? And that, you know, we, we, we must imagine that moving forward, that's going to affect not only the rates of people who want to go into the field, what kind of jobs they pursue after nursing school, how quickly they retire and, and how long they stay on the job, stay bedside versus uh, bailing out as soon as possible. Uh, like we're seeing so many people leave bedside nursing after their pandemic experiences. Yeah, I think you're right, JP. I, and I think the, the, the hope, the hope of all this is that it will make all healthcare providers, nurses, you know, maybe especially more aware of how important their job is, how the small details of taking care of someone's skin uh, prevents them from getting ulcers that leads to sepsis and death, for example, how those little things really do matter for patient care. And, you know, um, I, I'm struck by the irony of its relevance because this is the neurosurgery podcast, right? That this was a neurosurgical case. And I'll tell you something really bizarre that happened this morning. I call my mom usually on the weekend. I was calling her uh, driving in, driving home from the hospital this morning. And she goes, I have some really bad news for you. I'm like, what happened? She goes, well, um, Mrs. Chen died. I'm like, I'm like, which Mrs. Chen? She goes, it's, it was my first girlfriend's mother. And this is in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's terrible. What happened? She goes, well, she was fine. She was like the healthiest of us. And she fell and then went into the hospital. And then two days later, she died. But she was okay when she went in a hospital. And she died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And, you know, I think about that and I'm like, God, you know, I wonder if maybe, and I'm not indicting anyone with this. I'm like, maybe someone didn't scan enough or someone didn't want to do surgery, whatever. It's, I'm not trying to judge the case. I'm just saying the fact that our contact points with society are so numerous and, you know, it's really interesting. We're 1% of doctors, but it seems like everywhere you turn, there's neurosurgery. You're right. And uh, as you aptly point out, this is the neurosurgery podcast. And yet, yet here we are talking about this event, which like so many events, as you point out, is relevant to us and relevant to our community, both personally, as, as, as you just shared, and professionally. And so I will say to all of our listeners, you know, as 
We open this episode thanking you for staying with us and looking back on the conversations we've had to date. I'll say moving forward, this is more than appropriate and in fact a perfect issue that we'd like to hear from you about. If you have personal experiences, if you have um, anything that you'd like to share in, in writing to us, if you have any questions you'd like us to address, or if you feel that you have relevant expertise from the perspective of nursing, from medical law, from administration, anything that you think you can bring to this conversation and share, not for the nation at, at large, but for the neurosurgical community, again, exploring tough issues like this case, please write to us, please reach out, and we would be more than happy to have you on the show to discuss the, these things and share your perspective from your discipline or merely to address the questions or, or uh, raise the issues that you would like to hear discussed by us and our guests. So as always, you can reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com if you feel you have something to contribute to this conversation. So with that, we thank you all for staying with us through 100 great episodes. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.